welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Jeffrey Foote, a career sustainability man who held an executive position with the Coca-Cola Company for 20 years, spearheading climate action in the days when it wasn't in the news every day. In our conversation, he shares how he first got started in sustainability through a statistics class with his solar-powered calculator that used the famously polluted Love Canal as a case study. We talk about his family's roots in working on projects for community benefit, his investments in clean tech. I bet you never thought much about the uses of recycled sugarcane waste. I certainly hadn't. And about high-purity hydrogen, which has uses, for example, in household cleaning products. Jeff currently heads up his sustainability consulting practice, Footprints Resourcefulness Consultants. His work with his corporate clients gets into the nitty-gritty of sustainability strategy, including some of the things that don't always make for sexy headlines, like refrigeration and water stewardship. His travel resume is no less impressive than his business resume. He's worked and played on all seven continents. Along the way, we also uncover a passion for Bruce Springsteen and cycling. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, Good morning, Jeffrey Foote. How are you today? Christina, I am great. Thank you. How are you? I am. I'm doing good. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I think, are you in Georgia? Do I have that right? I'm in Milton, Georgia, in uh, North Georgia. What is, so just give us a little couple seconds on what is that like? I don't know a thing about, the only thing I know about Georgia is Atlanta, and I used to go to office meetings there downtown. I have no concept. What's it like in Georgia? Georgia is the second, is actually, Georgia's the largest state east of the Mississippi. It has the second most counties in the country, 159. Texas has more. It is a beautiful place to live. We have a great coast. We have wonderful mountain area in North Georgia. We have an amazing agricultural program here. And we're the, we are the center of the U.S. political world now because we have two runoff elections for the U.S. Senate. So it's an exciting place to be. No kidding with the politics. Um, right. Well, so you're Georgia proud, I think is, and this actually, maybe this is a segue into part of our technical conversation. Isn't Georgia the headquarters of the Coca-Cola company? It is the headquarters of the Coca-Cola company and UPS and Home Depot and Delta and several other Fortune 500 companies. I didn't know, or I hadn't thought about it. I guess I know it now that you say it. So your career in sustainability spans 20 years, more than that. A lot of that spent with the Coca-Cola company. Can you tell us how you got started in sustainability? Christina, I got an 18 on a statistics test in college, and that was 18 out of 100, not 18 out of 20. My dad was a banker growing, when I was growing up, and when I went off to school, he gave me the Bomar brain, which in, he bought in 1975 for $500. It was a handheld calculator, one of the very first ones. Mm-hmm. And he gave it to me. I took a statistics class my first year of college. It's 1982. And I uh, went in and the calculator didn't work. The mm-hmm. battery the battery died. And so mm-hmm. I, I couldn't use the calculator. I ended up getting 18 on the test. I complained to the professor. He said, hey, you got to be prepared. 
I went out and bought a Texas instrument solar calculator that I have in my right hand right now. I still use every single day. It's over, it's 30, 34 years old or something like that. I decided to take the class till the drop date, dropped it, took it the next semester from another professor. This new professor had done his PhD research on a thing called Love Canal. I went to school 45 miles south of Buffalo, Niagara Falls area, and Love Canal was a, a community that was hugely suffered because of basically corporate malfeasance. Between 19, I think 47 and, and 1981 or so, 56 of the births, 56% of the births in the Love Canal community had birth defects. And it was because a company called Occidental Chemical Company buried hundreds, if not thousands, of 55 gallon drums on their property. And that toxic waste leached into the drinking water and it poisoned the drinking water and it caused these birth defects. He brought that into the statistics class. It made it come to life. It made me think, oh my gosh, there's got to be a better way to do business. And it inspired me to think, I want to work in the environment. I want to work with business to help them figure out a way to, to do better business in a better way. And that's what inspired me. And I got so, an internship in DC and I've been doing sustainability since 1986 or environment since 1986. I'm so there's so much I want to talk about in there. So you've been in this sector since you were a young man. I want to comment on scoring low on math. I was, I, when I got to Cornell, I had to take math 001. It was like, I've just always struggled with that. I did not have a solar calculator. I'd love that. So were you connecting? Like, were you thinking of, I guess you must have, you were like, I'm never going to, that battery thing is never going to happen to me again. I'm going solar. Absolutely. And literally it still works. I've never, you know, I've never had to try just, it just charges on ambient light. Awesome. And so what was your first, so what did you study in school then? What was your first sustainability job? Well, I, I double majored in history and political science. Really learn to write, learn to research, learn to communicate. My first, you know, my first thing that I did really in sustainability was I was a lifeguard and grew up in New York and we had the bottle bill. And so, you know, there was a five cent deposit on every beer can and soda can. And basically people would throw them away. I would collect them, save them and redeem them for the money. And that was my beer money. Mm -hmm. And I I did that in school too. So that's how I kind of got into recycling. Was by mm-hmm. you know collecting bottles, bottles and cans, and redeeming them, and getting money. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you found your way to Coca Cola. Was your? I mean, I met you through Rob Swan, the person we all we all love and admire, um, the only person to walk to the North and South Pole. And so, my connection with you is through that great story of you two sort of pitching within Coca Cola for money for his Antarctic expedition. But I think at that time, you were not really in a sustainability role. Am I right? Tell, take us back to that chapter. Well, I, I actually was in a sustainability role. Um, that I've sort of, I did work in a think tank in the company that had broader responsibility. And so maybe that might be what you're referencing because we were actually involved in looking at marketing and we ended up doing a lot of work around, around water stewardship. But in... In the 2000, yeah, so during that time frame when I was in the think tank, 
I was asked by the vice chairman of the Coca-Cola company, Brian Dyson, to basically go meet Robert Swan and figure out a way how the company could better engage with him, particularly at this event that was happening in Johannesburg in late in the late summer of well, our summer of 2002, the, the, um, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. It was the World Summit for Sustainable Development. And uh, so I met Rob at the, at the top of the Western Peachtree and spent well over an hour just listening to his story. I probably got three, three or four words in uh, edgewise. <laughs> and I was just overwhelmed and, and just really excited about this opportunity. And so I, I got to pick 10 people from the Coke system and, and Rob picked a few people and we ended up having about 20 people help support him at the, at the World Summit. And for me, it was just an amazing trip. I, I had been to, I had been by at that time, I probably had been to 20 plus countries and um, most of the continents, but this was the most exciting business trip I had ever had because it wasn't just sitting in conference room. It was really doing things locally. We did a litter cleanup on this just putrid river in in Johannesburg. We um, we got out into the community. We went, we went to the townships. We did team building, all those kind of things that were just really hands on, and that just was an amazing experience. From the you know my entree to sustainability is through tourism, and I've been talking about sustainable tourism and working in that area for twenty years. But I feel like my eyes are just opening to the broader sustainability profession and what that, all the different um, aspects of a company that that touches. And so one of the things that caught my eye in your background was this idea of water stewardship and thinking about that from the perspective of a company like Coca-Cola. Give us the, you know, the 10,000 foot view on on what a company like Coca-Cola has to think about when it comes to sustainability and water. Water is vital to just about everything we do, make, and grow. I had traveled to, I think I've been to 150 plus Coke facilities around the world. And there was one constant that I saw that, that kept me awake at night. And it was that there was water all over the place. There were leaky pipes. There was mm. water on the floor. There were, it was just unbelievable unbelievable amount of water being used to make the product, to clean the facilities. The facilities are spotless. You can eat off the floor, but you just an incredible amount of water. And we, at the time, the company kind of measured what came in and what went out. And, and that was it. But there's hundreds of uses within a facility. And I started to sort of do some really uh, rudimentary measurement of things, you know, like a stopwatch in a bucket to see how much how much a leak was was generating. And if you don't measure something, you can't manage it. And every single product, if you look at the ingredient list on every single product that the Coca-Cola company sells, the first ingredient is water. And it doesn't matter if that water's coming from Johannesburg, the city of Atlanta, Jakarta, you name it. They've got to treat it and they've they've got to handle it correctly. Um, and it's got to be pristine. And so it, it really inspired me to do a better job and figure out how much we were using and what could we do to, to, to really reduce that use. And I was in the think tank 
and basically I, I worked with, with nine other really, really smart people, people much smarter than me. And I said, Hey, you know, the biggest issue around this company, around the system is water. They agreed and, and they did a whole lot of great work on figuring out how to take a strategic look at water. And it, I think this, this applies to any company. What's your risks around water? What's you, you operate within a watershed. Where does that water come from? Where does it go? And what impact do you have on it? And what impact do all your neighbors have on it? And then what's your role to hopefully use it in a, in a, in a efficient manner? Return any, any of it goes back to nature as good or better than you took it and work with your neighbors in a way to protect that watershed. And so when you're working with companies today, so the measurement piece obviously is so huge. And I know that that, from my vantage point, also a lot of the businesses I work with are, you know, small businesses, 10 and fewer employees. And the measurement element of, we talk a lot about measuring the carbon footprint, um, the emissions, and that can be such a burden for some businesses. I think in a, it's almost like in a large company, it's even worse. Like we talk about how hard this is for a small business because you don't have the manpower. But in a large company, it also seems like the scale of trying to get a measurement program in place is like, how do you take the first step there? What was the first step that you took with 150 I mean, you named all these places. How did you, how did that move through the system? Part of it was that I would actually go into facilities and, and, and ask permission to do some measurement. And a lot of it was ro- ro- rudimentary, but it, you got the attention of the plant manager and got them to think, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you know, we're not paying attention to this. We, we should do it. And then in some cases that would inspire them to do more. At one point I got to speak in South Africa uh, to to all the bottlers in South Africa, and I gave to the, the division president at the end what's called a spanner, basically a huge big wrench. And I said, look, twenty percent of our water use is leaks. I really encourage all you plant managers to just go around with 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 a wrench, assign mm-hmm. somebody with a wrench, and go fix go fix leaks. But the thing that really really helped was I I hired one of our consultants, one of our suppliers, to look at four facilities in Metro Atlanta. And we had them put a ultrasonic measurement device on every single pipe in each one of those four facilities for, I think, two weeks. So they measured every single bit of water use. And then we, then we just had this, this reams of data, and we started going through the data. And one of the facilities only operated five days a week. And you look at the data, and on Saturday and Sunday, the water use did not drop dramatically, but they weren't oh. producing. So that... Big light bulb goes off. What's going on? There must be a leak. They start look. They find a huge leak. There's all these other. You start looking at each use of water, and you see that that there, there there's tremendous use. So we did measurement, and we there was about a hundred million gallons of water that met the city of Atlanta's drinking standards going down the drain. My goodness, my and so when you work with companies today, because you now have a consulting practice. And I love your newsletter, by the Thank way. You. There's so much good data. And I love the subject lines always have like a data point that makes me open. I'm learning from you on that. So t- say a little bit about um, what you're doing lately and the, and the companies you work with lately. What's on the top of their agenda? I would think water 
is probably still on the top of the agenda. Well, so I'm working with a company called BioSure, and BioSure takes tap water, infuses it with electricity, and creates aqueous ozone. How do you? Oh, there's so many words there. How do you infuse water with electricity? They, they basically have created this very beautiful looking. Uh, looks like it looks like Apple designed cylinder. Mm kind of like a 16 ounce can size type of thing or like a spray, mm. but it's a spray bottle, but it's metal, it's beautiful. And it has electronic components in it. You put tap water in it. And then it, after about three or four minutes of a charge, it's basically taken and created another ion of oxygen and creates ozone. And ozone pretty much kills anything. It kills bacteria, it kills molds, kills spores. It, you can use it to clean, contact clean anything. It's as effective or more effective as things like Clorox and Lysol. Fascinating. Why why do people not use this all the time? Well, it's, it's just because it's new and we don't know about it. it in a sense, it's it's new to the U.S. Uh, it, this technology has been around for about thirty years, but from through innovation and and, and just new experiment and R and D. They've got it down to the size where it's it's a handheld and you can use it in your home or you can use it at, you know, in a restaurant to, to clean surfaces. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you're consulting with them. So or you're cons- on consulting with them. So this is this is a, a way to use water without chemicals for sanitation and clean, mm-hmm. which which is a fantastic mm-hmm. thing. So that's one. Um, I'm also doing some work for another beverage company, and it's just started. So um, I really excited about this, but just helping them look at sustainability and look at what, you know, how they measure what their, what their impact is and, and, and where can they find opportunities to, to reduce um, their impact. And really what, what I try to do with my customers is I try to work with them to use fewer resources. Um, Are they thinking about climate? Do they come to you and say, we're really, why, how did these conversations start? Is it from a money standpoint or a climate standpoint or uh, you know so so some it comes from hey our our big investors are asking us to report and they're asking us to report in two at least two areas one is climate and the other is water stewardship and so so these companies are they've done that one cut at at the reporting and now they want to report more effectively and they want to you know see if there's ways to to, to be be more effective with regards to their overall governance. Mm-hmm. So fascinating. The um, I think the governance piece is, you know, in larger companies, this is, I, I work with small businesses and I think we think of governance, it's just in a different way than at a large business. It, you know, so I, 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 I basically want- can carry over. Right. They, they, oh, they absolutely can. You know, I, I, I'm basically a one person show right now. Maybe we'll grow. I'll grow a little bit. But as, as I'm starting to build my my business, I'm looking at considering becoming a B Corp mm-hmm. to go through that process. Now, I may I may or may not certify, but I want to go through their process and look at what are my what's my government's governance structure look like. What kind of commitment I'm going to make to the community? What kind of mm-hmm. donation type involvement, whether it be financial or volunteer, am I going to do? If I haven't 
employees? You know, what kind of benefits are they going to have? What, you know, all, all those kind of things. So even as a today one person shop, I'm thinking about my governance and mm-hmm. what my impact is on society and, and mm-hmm. really how my business is, is designed that it's, it's for the great, hopefully it's for the greater good. Yes. I need, I want to make money, uh, but I want, I, I want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. What was your family life like, Jeff? What are, what were your parents like? How did you get this way? <laughs> my dad was an incredible citizen. He volunteered for so many things locally. He was a banker. His claim to fame probably was that he organized the bicentennial celebration in my hometown, Middletown, New York, in 1976. And mm. I think it was a couple, at least two-year effort for him to, to do. And it was, it was the coolest, biggest thing that really ever happened in that 25,000-person town. It nearly killed him. I think he might have had a heart, a small heart attack, um, undiagnosed <laughs> doing it. But he he was so active locally. If if you wanted, uh, if you needed somebody to do something in the community, uh, you you called Richard Foot, and he would he would come and volunteer. So that was, and my mom was this was a nurse, and a school nurse, and um, she she loved the outdoors. Uh, she, she, she still loves the outdoors. So I would say that those two things, and you know, my, my maternal grandfather was a big hunter. And I know at some point during the depression that his, he fed his family mm. with, with fish he caught and, and animals he shot. Um, mm-hmm. so he, he had a deep respect for the outdoors. And I think I got a big piece of that genetically. Mm-hmm. I'm always so curious, you know, because there's such a range. What I notice is there's such a range of inputs that bring us to this shared commitment. You know, it really, I, I was talking with another one of our guests, Matthew Eshed, who said something along the lines of there are millions, billions maybe of people on earth who share a similar commitment and passion for sustainability and the earth. And we just need, you know, we just got to get them all together on the same kind yeah. of playbook. And it is fascinating how we can come from such different backgrounds and have the same passionate feeling. Well, you know, I, I, I need to, I owe my parents this as well. They're the ones that got me traveling. When I was mm-hmm. seven years old, my mom and grandmother took me to Germany for, mm-hmm. for a month with, with my mm-hmm. cousin. When I was 13 years old, my parents put up money in a, it, that enabled me, along with my high school soccer team, to go to Mexico City for two mm-hmm. weeks and play soccer. Mm-hmm. My very first job, I was 21 years old, and I was tasked with putting together a trip to Germany and Switzerland to look at composting and recycling programs there. No kidding. What year was that? That, that was uh, 1986. I, that's so – these things have been around – you know, like I just read this New York Times recently during the coronavirus about composting in your living room that mm-hmm. a woman had created. And, it, you know, I was like, yeah, compost. Right. But it feels like it's always been this fringy thing that, you know, these principles have been around forever. And now now people are more interested. Well, we have all the tools mm-hmm. at our disposal today to, to really c- conquer climate change to conquer hunger, to conquer 
water stewardship. Technology is getting better. That's going to make it more more applicable. But how many people do you know that actually compost? It, it's it's actually. It's, I mean, I'm still not doing it here in in where we are in New Mexico because my mom is worried about rodents. We're staying with my 83 year old mom during this period, and she's like, I don't, I don't know. Aren't we going to get like a lot of critters? And anyway, one way to keep the critters away: don't no meat. No meat, no bones, and also mm-hmm. to have an enclosed bin. And I'll send you an article mm-hmm. that I wrote not too long ago. It, you know, we the, we take all of our food scrap stuff, we put it in a Tupperware thing, and keep it in the fridge. So mm-hmm. that way, that way it doesn't smell, and mm-hmm. it does, and we don't we're not attracting bugs in the house. And in then, San Francisco, we would freeze it, yeah, and then that put works it in too. the bin, and the San Francisco city picks it up. But here in Santa Fe, they don't do that. And so the friends I have who compost are doing it like in their, you know, in their backyard with, they're running their own, the whole show in their backyard. You, you can get for a couple hundred bucks, a really nice enclosed bin that spins that you, that, so mm-hmm. that, that you won't get, you won't get any vectors with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll do it. You've told me two great things now that I have to check into. One is BioSure. One is the spinning backyard composter. Tell me about, I also have in my background on you here, Tree Zero. Talk about Tree Zero and this sugarcane sugar cane waste. Sure. What is sugarcane waste? Well, you know, there's this big concept in business called the circular economy. Mm-hmm. Our economy, for the most part, is linear, right? We, we, we extract, we beat, we heat, we treat, and then we dispose of it, all kind of in a straight line. And it creates a tremendous amount of crap. In fact, it's about 70 pounds per person per day of, of material taken out of the Earth's crust for, to, to support the American lifestyle. That's for our heating, our clothes, our cars, our food, all those kind of things. And only about 9% of that gets recycled or gets composted. So it is, in fact, circular. So it's a really small amount. And at Coke, Coke was the largest buyer of sugar in the world. And when you grow sugarcane, if we were to grow a ton of uh, one ton of sugarcane and cut it up and processed it for sugar, we'd only get about 250 pounds of sugar out of that ton of, of organic material. Say that again. A, a ton of sugarcane, crush it down. You're only going to get about 250 pounds of sugar. So wow. there's a ton of, you know, nearly a ton of material left over. You, you know, you can... You can leave it on the field. It can get composted. You, you can burn it for fuel. And a lot of paper mills and, and sugar refineries, that's part of their fuel is that material, which is okay. That's better than burning coal for sure. Um, but it makes, it makes great paper. You can process that stuff into paper. There are a couple places in, in, in the world that do that. Uh, Columbia, the country of Colombia, there's there's a couple of really nice mills. There's a there's a mill in Argentina. I believe there's a mill in, and I've been to two. I've been to both. I've been to all three of those. There's I think there's one in in Iran, which I have not been to. Tell uh, tell us about. I want to hear about the, this mill. So you're in Argentina. You get on the plane. You're heading down to look at sugarcane paper mills. What do they look like? What was, what was, what were they? It, look, it looks like a, I mean, if you, have you ever been to a paper mill? 
no. paper mills are it's big, huge industrial um, complex. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could go to one today, um, or, or you could have gone to one 100 years ago, and it doesn't look very much different. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the, I was in a mill last year in the Chattanooga area that was 100 years old. Mm-hmm. And some of the equipment's original there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but big industrial, really, really lots of steam and hot and tons of water. It takes an amazing amount of water to make paper. I mean, it starts out like, you know, just like mud. I mean, I mean, really, really wet mud. And then they just, they run it and smush it and heat it and everything to, to, to get it to paper. And, and I think average paper is like 7% moisture in it. Uh, but basically this, the mills that I've been to that, that make, uh, uh, paper from bagasse, bagasse is sugarcane waste. Uh, they, the, the material gets sorted really well and, and, cut into really nice uniform size fibers. And then it goes through the exactly same process as if it were, if it were fiber from, from trees to make the paper. What, what you th- have so many facts at your fingertips. It's amazing to me, these details that are in your head. Well, I, 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 I'm an inch, I'm an inch deep and a mile wide. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, it's there, there are people that are, are incredibly much more, specialized or technical technologically capable that 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 i've learned from so all these places you've gone all over the world working on different with different sustainability things in your mind with coca-cola you were in their bottling plants and looking at water you're in argentina and colombia thinking about sugarcane waste and paper what are there any um sort of generalities you could draw about what you see around the world in terms of progress in industrial kind of sustainability? That's kind of a weird question maybe, but maybe you have an answer. I'm sad to say on the recycling side, I think the progress is stalled and the recycling rate in the United States is not much better than it was in 1982 when I started that you know, recycling beer. And beer How can that be? I feel like we talk about it all the time. It's on every package with the little circle. The re- I'm carrying piles of recycling to glass. And so why do you think the rate in the U.S. is down? Uh, there, there's several reasons. One, uh, tons of contamination. You know, there's, there's so many different types of plastic. And essentially, the pa- plastic made for a soft drink container and the plastic used for, uh, which is PET, and the plastic used for milk jugs and most sort of like liquid laundry detergent, those are practically the only ones that are, that are being recycled at any, any rate. The film plastics, the bags, the things that are multi-material plastics, those things aren't really uh, getting the job done and they're contaminating other things. The recycling industry, maybe 10 years ago, decided, let's make it more convenient for our, our consumers. Let's let everybody put it into one bin, everything, your cans, your bottles, your paper, all that stuff together. It's called single stream, and then we'll mm-hmm. sort it out someplace else. That really created a lot more. It was easier for the consumer, but it, you, garbage in, garbage out. And you, so you, the contamination level went way up. So you think you're recycling, but you're really not. Yeah, you're, wish, you're wish cycling. In some, in, in some cases, um, that was the problem. A lot of the material that was that was recovered and processed and ready to be raw material to be made into something else typically went to China, 
Uh, and then China. Oh, and I saw the news on that. They said, we don't want your junk anymore. Green sword. We don't want it. And they, they basically shut, they almost shut all the plastic and most of the, the paper fiber out. So that, that, you know, so those are two big things that have, that have caused um, big problems. I think the solutions are um, that, and, and we're starting to see this, that um, brands take more responsibility. Brands start to mm. ask for more recycled material. They do design for recycling. So they try to avoid contaminants. Um, and, th- and they encourage their consumers to to participate in recycling. But the consumer needs to to say, hey, I, I want you to use more recycled content. I want you to, to do more. So do you have any data on I get asked this question, you know, with my climate work around carbon removal, people say, Christina, do you have any evidence that people care about this and want it? And I have I have data from. I have traveler surveys that show travelers care about sustainability generally and that they, and that climate is on their minds. Um, But I don't have the exact data to answer the question. Like consumers are clamoring for carbon removal. Do you have, I, and I love watching this kind of brand um, the, the rising power of brands is that consumers are driving that, right? Do you see this? Consumers do do drive it. There's lots of. I'll give you a very specific one that. So we did a promotion at Coke with Walmart, and what we did was we we basically worked with a supplier to create merchandise, shirts, t-shirts, and and reusable shopping bags and things like that made from recycled Coke bottles. And we co-displayed those with Coke products in plastic bottles for sale at Walmart. And so in the Action Alley area, you know, this is in a, in June and this was, this is over 10 years ago, but basically you could buy, you could buy a six pack or a 12 pack of, of Coke products in plastic. And right next to it, there were, there were t-shirts made really nice, high quality t-shirts made from recycled PET that you could buy as well. So there was that, you could see that connection point. Okay, I drink mm-hmm. this, I recycle it, and it could turn into this shirt in mm-hmm. the future. Sales were up 25% during that period. Hmm. And it was an integrated effort. So, the, the, you know, there was on sale, there was the promotion, mm-hmm. and, and then they had the newspaper ad, radio ad, TV ad mm-hmm. for all, all that kind of stuff. So there was a, there was a connection in the mind of the consumer. Mm-hmm. Consumers want to do these things. But I'm always skeptical when people say they'll spend more. Yeah. I, I, I don't trust, I don't, I'm always kind of skeptical on that data. That's when yeah. people say, well, I, I'm willing to pay X 10% or 15% more. That usually what we see happen. in travel is uh, people are grateful when you wrap these extra costs into their price, but they won't opt for it. Exactly. And travel companies are nervous to create the option. But once they do, they come out that then it's a, their customers thank them for it. But I think you're right. I think that, I think companies can win in the marketplace by not making it an option, but saying, this is what, this is part of our consumer proposition that we have a high level of recycled content, that we are offsetting our carbon emissions. We've maximized the amount. We, now we're using 50% renewable energy. 
and we have a goal to get 75% in that last 25, we're going to offset with some sort of carbon purchasing. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to plant trees. We're going to participate in a, in a red plus program or, or something like mm-hmm. that. I think that will drive purchase intent. That Companies have to stick their necks out. They, I was looking at the, um, you know, a graph that looks at what, what trajectory we're on as far as temperature increase based on commitments that countries have made to the Paris Agreement. And, you know, the commitments that countries have made still has us on a trajectory of three degrees warming. We, it's like these things aren't going to happen until people mandate it for themselves. I see this like as the, the voluntary carbon markets, the corporate actions where you just bite the bullet and say, my product is going to get more expensive because I'm going to take these measures. We need more companies to do that, to set the example. Do I, am I idealistic there or what are your thoughts? No, I think you, you're right. We definitely need more companies to set the example. I think we need more thoughtful and smart legislation mm. and regulation for sure. Uh, investors really care. I, so, so the big investor organizations are starting to, to, to really put more demands on that. Mm-hmm. that their expectation right. is that, hey, we're going to, we're going to, I think the big focus has been on the oil folks. So mm-hmm. you, you, it was, I think last week, the New York State Pension Fund made a commitment that over the next couple of years, maybe it's four years, that they would divest everything that they had with, invested in, in, in any kind of petroleum business. And so I, I think that that will continue and we'll, we'll see that there'll be activism in the financial space around general climate as well. So if you're a big generator of a big user of energy and you don't have really good commitments, you're not really doing anything in the renewable space and you're not looking at, 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 at any kind of offsets or anything like that, over time, I think the investors will, will decide not to invest in you anymore. They'll look mm-hmm. at they'll look at other other companies that are much more efficient, or or that mm-hmm. have that have solutions to to this stuff. Do you have any perspective on whether you think uh, oil companies will transform? I am I am pretty optimistic on that front. Actually, I think these are business people. If they want to stay in business, they will. Right, and there's so much intelligence in these companies, Ooh. so. They're brilliant. Like, they're, they're, there are brilliant mm-hmm. people at ExxonMobil, at Shell, mm-hmm. at BP, at, at mm-hmm. Chevron, at mm-hmm. all the, at, at these other, they're, they're, and they're caring people. They're people, you mm-hmm. know, and they're trying to make a living. They're trying to make a difference. But some of the, I think some of those companies can transform themselves. I don't think that they're going to be able to continue to, um, expect to be able to, put into play all the resources that they have in the ground mm-hmm. today. I just don't think that's going to work, mm-hmm. but, but they, with technology and things like that, they could get into other energy related businesses for sure mm-hmm. or, or some other completely different business. Mm-hmm. Jeff, um, there's something else I want to break in. We had also a conversation about project drawdown and the inspiration you got from that and sort of your 
recognition around the role of women's leadership and women's empowerment. Can you um, bring us bring that into the conversation here too? So when I was involved with Tree Zero, I was one of their investors, and I was tasked with figuring out a way for us to be carbon neutral. We didn't own the mills; we bought from the mills. The mills were pretty pretty efficient. Uh, they were using some renewable energy, but they weren't going to in the, any year future be 100% renewable. So I got involved in in figuring out what the life cycle assessment was of the energy use to to make the product. Mm-hmm. And we actually set the boundary all the way back to the growing of sugarcane versus the growing of trees to take a mm-hmm. look at what the full carbon footprint across the full life was. The one piece that we we left out, which I, which we shouldn't have, is the energy to run a copper a copier or a printer um, when you're mm-hmm. using, using the paper. It, the minimus part of it, but we should have measured it anyway. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did these life cycle assessment things to figure out what the carbon commitment was. And then I looked at, I think, six different options of organizations that were doing something in the offsetting space to see if there was a way. Now I knew what our carbon footprint was. And so a, a ream of paper is kind of our measurement. And mm-hmm. a ream of paper weighs five pounds. And our carbon footprint was about 4.9 pounds of carbon for that one ream. So almost, mm-hmm. almost a one for one. Wow. I'll and, never look at a stack of paper the same way. <laughs> yes, but. Well, think of everything you buy that you use. Yes. There, there, someone, yes. can, someone may have done that measurement or that measurement can be done. It can be done. And, and then ca- how can you offset it? And so we looked at six different options. And we found Wildlife Works to be really compelling. It wasn't the cheapest option. There were, there were things that we could have bought for two or three dollars a ton that were investments that would create, help and create demand and help fund future investments in renewable fuel, windmills and different things in solar and those kind of things. But we wanted to do something that was sort of more in our space. We're, we're, we're competing with trees. We think trees are better left as, uh, as trees to provide the environmental benefits that they do, which is clean air and, and clean water and, and better soil and, and less erosion. And so we thought, why not get involved in some sort of effort that preserves existing forests? And mm-hmm. I've, I've seen statistics that if you, if you were to walk f- from a old growth forest into, into a managed plantation, mm-hmm. pine mm-hmm. plantation, the, the temperature is going to increase 10 degrees as you walk into that pine plantation. The, the humidity is going to drop mm-hmm. about 10%, 10 or 20%. Uh, the wildlife bi- biodiversity is, going to, is mm-hmm. going to really shrink. And so in that research, we came across RED as a concept. And we found Wildlife Works. And we just really liked the story that they had. They were working in Kenya in a couple of locations and in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that's where I think the second largest rainforest is in the world. And their program, did you based, go there? that's the only thing that I did. We, I didn't have the funds to be able to go. And I really mm-hmm. wish I had. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we always had planned to do it, but we just, we, we, we never, we never were able to get an, it, um, mm-hmm. enough money set aside to be able to do that. So I had to rely on people on the ground and their experts um, but they were, you know, good good scientists and good researchers. Right. 
but basically they created a program to incentivize the local folks not to cut the trees down for charcoal or mm-hmm. or for for basically to make fuel for cooking and and heating and so creating other jobs and that way, that way they didn't cut the trees down that's it so i had a conversation this morning actually with a hungarian gentleman who's working on a a hybrid kind of tree emerald emerald something but he was yeah and we got to talking about the great green wall in africa and about some of these tree planting initiatives where the you know the trees get nibbled and people cut them down and i want i should put you in touch with this guy i'm going through my notes to find the name um it feels to me like there's a lot more complexity when it comes to planting trees and managing trees and the the challenge of maintaining old growth i mean that is really that's the key isn't it is how do we preserve the things we've got because they're so distinctive yeah absolutely and and it is very complex and that you know i think that red has done okay i don't think it's grown as fast as people had hoped but it is a very complex process that has to be put in place to measure it and, and to really prove that trees aren't getting cut down and, and that the ones that are there that are that are being um, uh, preserved appropriately and then if they're planting new that they're doing that in the right way it's there's there's a lot of complexity in, in those type of efforts I want to ask you if you're optimistic about our abilities to stop global warming I am optimistic. I, I believe, so Princeton just came out with a report that showed, I can't remember the numbers, but it was, it was in the, it was, I think it was less than $10 trillion over, you know, the next 20 years for us to put into place uh, the ability to be, I believe, net zero. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's there. I, you know, here, here's something that hopefully people are super at. optimistic too. I mean, I think the, I think, you know, it's about the dream, not the nightmare. And the yeah. corners of the world that I interact with are um, innovators in carbon removal. I spend a lot of time with these sort of big dreamers who are doing incredible things. I, But I love to ask people who have a much broader background and perspective than mine. So I'm so glad you said you're optimistic. Okay, keep going. Well, so what I was going to say, Christina, is that so anybody that's listening to this, and, and if they at some point are, are faced with a decision, I've got to buy a new washing machine, or I've got to, I'm going to put in a new sink, or I'm going to mm-hmm. buy a new vacuum cleaner, or, or you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to put in new lighting in my house or whatever. There, there's a great resource. And it, it, and it, the website is D S I R E U S A.org. And it's the listing of financial incentives for energy efficiency and renewable energy grants subsidies across the u.s so you go you go in look under new mexico and then see what state subsidies and state grants are available or what's available in in santa fe in some cases it it, it may be you know 20 percent off on the most efficient toilet or mm. low flow nozzles or led lighting so 
that kind. So any kind of directory, how does that, I want to do something similar for tomorrow's air. I had Mm -hmm. the idea to call it the air book, which would be like a directory of the climate clever hotels and, Mm -hmm. you know, all that, you know, but it is a daunting figuring out the inputs to this. How does something like that get built? Is there an association? I I, don't know anything about it. I I believe a university. I, and I can't mm-hmm. remember which university it is that manages it. It might be, mm-hmm. it, it might be North Carolina State University. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. But, but it's but it's done it's done by a university. But certainly you can pull this together, and I think start mm-hmm. small, mm-hmm. and realize that you know every day you're probably going to come up with um, things that you're going to hear about to add, and that as mm-hmm. it grows, organizations are going to say, well, we've got products that should be listed mm-hmm. on on this. right. Then it starts to um be its own kind of magnet. Yeah. So many practical single things that the uh I love, you know, one of the things I say at Tomorrow's Air is take climate action into your own hands because I became so tired of hearing about my only path to climate action was to make sure I voted, which I was doing, and to kind of, you know, hope that big investors made investments. And I felt like the individual traveler also wants to be, wants to be empowered in this space. And I think, you know, all the different categories of sustainability that you're talking about. Also, these are ways that we can feel empowered and not just sort of sitting here wringing our hands while the sky falls. Oh, exactly. You know, there's this concept I I have in my head called, I, I would call it leveraged travel. Mm-hmm. Leverage travel to me is so a business per, person for business, or they work for an NGO, but but has to travel. That and they're going to speak at a conference, or they they're going to this specific meeting that they're that they're uh, have to go to. They're going to do a facility audit, whatever it is, right? So you're going. Let's let's just pretend I've got to go to, I've got to go to Santa Fe, and mm-hmm. so and I've got to be there on January fifth. Instead of just that's I'm going to go. I'm going to be there for the day, and I'm going to come. I'm going to come back the next night. Really, how can I leverage that travel? What it, what is there that? Uh, so I'm going to go, and I'm going to see the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum while I'm there, and I'm going to go see the History Museum. I'm going to um, maybe I'm going to go for a run at eight thousand feet because I haven't done that in a really long time, and, and see see how I do. I'm going to go and you know so do some research around the things. I'm spending all this money and effort to get there. What if I stayed another half day? What if I stayed two more days? Is there a, is there a potential customer or some really cool innovation? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think people usually think that way when they, when they travel. They're like, all right, I've been asked to do this. I've got to do it on the fifth mm-hmm. and uh, there mm-hmm. and back. And they, mm-hmm. they, they sort of, they get in a metal tube and they, then mm-hmm. they get in an Uber and then they get in a box of a hotel and then they, and then they go down to the conference room they do their thing and then they reverse it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What if there was? What if there was some big litter cleanup going on that keep New Mexico mm-hmm. beautiful was doing that you could participate while you were there? Or there was a stream sampling project that was going on you could see, or you could make those things more available to people when they're in that kind of planning. The travel industry loves you for those statements. By the way, <laughs> we talk a lot about you know stay an extra day, go stay longer, go further. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. I, uh, Jeff, I have to wrap. I need to ask you about music. 
and also your next trip. You know, when we come out of coronavirus and we're able to kind of, I hope travel is talking a lot about building back better. And we will do that. We are transforming how travel experiences happen. All businesses um, that I work with are looking not only at carbon cleanup, but reduction. And so anyway, we're going to come back, but people are going to start traveling again. Where where are you going to go? And then I want to hear about your musical tastes. Short term, I've got 58 counties still to ride in in Georgia. My goal is to ride in wow. all 100. So I've ridden in 101. On your bicycle. On my bicycle. And I want to do the, I've got to get the other 58. So that's going to happen the next You're a measurement guy. Well, it's kind of track of things. A lot of that comes from Rob, you know, the first person to walk to the South Pole or the North Pole. You know, so I want to be able to say I'm one of the only people to have ridden his bike in every county in Georgia. That is so cool. Okay. I love that. And you get to see a website. We got to follow you. (laughs) I did. Well, so we're building a website just in general for footprints. And so there, there will be something about that there. I love history. I love architecture. I love the outdoors. I love cycling. And they all sort of come together in that. Uh-huh. Awesome. Okay, cool. couple more counties in Georgia. And what are you listening to in your headphones as you're spinning through these towns? Letter to you, Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band. Yes. It is fantastic. Amazing. <laughs> and I can't wait to see it live. I, Bruce Springsteen, I read his biography and I also watched the one man show. He is something special for sure. Since 1980, that has been my favorite musician. And I just love every bit of music that he's, he's ever put out. And I've only seen him 10 times live, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will travel. I saw, him, I saw him once and I, I grew up in Alaska in the eighties and People like Bruce Springsteen did not come there. And then in my adult life, I got the chance. So I knew he was a big star, you know. But then when I got to see him in San Francisco a few years ago, I was like, oh, now I get what this is about. He is an incredible performer. He really is. The level of energy that he brings Mm -hmm. is its just unmatched. Mm Mm-hmm. And you feel connected. You do. I felt connected to him. Oh, I was like, do. oh, I'm turning into a fan. It's so amazing how some people can He's do doing that. that for you while you're there, specifically for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. You also, I have to really thank you for those introductions that um, you shared. I am going to talk with some people that you hooked me up with. Great. See what we can get going with carbon removal. Um, You are very generous with your time and expertise, and I really thank you. Christina, thank you so much. Delightful to to be on the show. Really, I think it's a great effort that you're doing, and uh, let's uh, let's stay in touch. Let's capture some more carbon. Mm -hmm.